I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 3. I want to tell you about a time 42 years ago. Uh, I was in Youngstown, Ohio. My life was an absolute mess. My job situation was kind of iffy. I had just met Kelly, uh, separated from my wife, soon to be divorced. And I was visiting my folks in Ohio. And I, I knew there was a God. I, I, I didn't know him personally, but I knew he was up there. And I knew he was, he was messing with my life. <laughs> and that there was something going on. And I found myself on the freeway in Youngstown. The freeway in Youngstown is about four miles long. I mean, it's not much of a freeway. Uh, but I'd been driving up and down the freeway, and uh, I, was, I was crying out to God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I knew that he wanted me to do something. I had no idea what it was. I had no idea how to find out. I was waiting for some magical thing to occur, some road sign would say, hey, John, do this, or something like that. And uh, I struggled with that question, what do you want me to do? What shall I do? I think we, we all have that question from time to time. What does God want me to do? What shall I do? As a matter of fact, that's the name of our sermon today, What Shall I Do? We're in part seven of our ongoing series in Luke, God's Love for Everyone. And it's also the question for the day. What shall I do? How do we know what God's will for our life is? How do we know how to make the decisions we have to make going through each day? And so we're going to take a look at verses 1 through 21 of Luke 3. This passage rolls out in six short vignettes, six scenarios. We'll see a proclamation. That'll be followed by an accusation. Followed by a revelation which funnels into an expectation, and then we'll see an incarceration, and then we'll see a consecration. Now, I've, I've had a rough week. I've got a cold, and I hope you appreciate how hard I worked on all those shunts, shunts, okay? So just make me feel good for a second, all right? <laughs> yeah, okay, I have to repent from being prideful. Excuse me, Father. I'll end up tumbling off the stage here if I'm not careful. So I want to I take a look at this proclamation, and this is going to be found in verses 1 through 7. It starts like this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. That's something I worked on too. The things you don't know about how hard a pastor works for these things. And, you know, when I read these things, I've got to try and figure out, do I use the name the way they said it, or do we Anglicanize the name? And so I've chosen to do it the way they said it, but you can do it any way you like. You know, when, I was, when, when, <laughs> when, when we were over in France, people were calling me Jean. And, and would explain, that's... That's the French word for John. And I would go, but that's not my name. <laughs> my name is John. So I, I get picky about the bi biblical names. And uh, just a little bit more insight to how hard my week has been. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. Anyway, why? This is during the high priesthood of Annas and, and Caiaphas. Why, why do we have all these names? What's going on here? Why 
does God inspire Luke to put all these names and all these regions and everything in there? You know, they, they would seem incidental, except that we live in a time where things like the historicity of Jesus Christ is in question. And, you know, theologians are asking, did he actually exist? Was he a concept? You know, was he a, an amalgam of a number of people? And, you know, did it develop over time and so on and so forth? Except that God gives us these names because we can find these people in history. They're well documented. Not everything that happened with the Jews is well documented, but the, the Roman Empire is extremely well documented. So we can pinpoint on the historical map where this was and when this was. These are real people. And God is saying these are real people, and the people that, that roll out in our scenarios here are real people as well. So God gives us a, a milestone that we can check this with. So during this time, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, here's the, here's the baby that we saw in Luke 1 and Luke 2. Grown up, he's been out in the wilderness, he's eating bugs with honey, he's got funny clothes on, but the, the idea of him being born to Elizabeth, who was barren, would not have gone unnoticed where John lived. And even more significant, the events in the temple when, uh, when John was taken there uh, and, and he prophesied over, that, that, would, that, that would not, not have gone unnoticed as well. People would know who this baby was. There would be an expectation of what he was going to do. So he's out in the wilderness, and the word of God comes to him, and everybody knows that God is involved in seeing this baby born, that something miraculous is going on. There's, there's an anticipation of what's going to happen when he grows up, and now he's grown up. And in verse 3, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, here it is. He, he's got something to say. Everybody's been waiting probably for 14 or 15 years, maybe a little bit longer, to find out what he was going to do. And he's out in the wilderness, and he's proclaiming this baptism for repentance. Now, Again, when we look at this word baptism, you and I think very readily about the sacrament of baptism. I don't think that uh, the Jews saw it that way. I think they see it as immersion. Uh, and this was a slap in the face of the Jews, a baptism for repentance. He's calling the Jews to a baptism for repentance. Now, the Jews had, uh, I mean, the baptism is not a new thing. The, the Jews had this tradition of cleansing. Uh, they had these pools called mikvahs, and they were near the synagogues. Sometimes they were in the synagogues. They were throughout the town. And the mikvahs were used for cleansing the, the instruments used in the synagogues, the instruments used in the temple. The priests would cleanse themselves in the mikvah. But the only time any normal person other than the priesthood would go in the mikvah would be when a Gentile was being baptized, immersed in the Jewish faith. You see, baptism was to clean the Gentiles of the filth of the world. And the Jews didn't need that because they were God's people. So John is out in the wilderness calling the Jews to be immersed in repentance. Now, there's a tension here because they all know something special is going on. God is doing something special in John's life. But this is not what they expect. 
And in verse 4 it says, he's doing this as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And what he's about to say is very important to be taken in context. Because it sounds sweet and lovely. But this is out of Isaiah 40. And I want to talk to you for just a moment about the context of Isaiah 40. Because there's a series of events here that lead up to this prophecy that comes out of 40. In Isaiah 37, Sennacherib... Um, of the Assyrians has carried away the northern kingdom and he lays siege to Jerusalem. And King Hezekiah of Jerusalem, who's one of the good kings, calls out to God for help. God slays 187,000 of Sennacherib's soldiers overnight. They wake up, they're all dead. Sennacherib goes home with his tail between his legs and Jerusalem is saved. In Isaiah 38, Hezekiah gets sick. And he calls out to God again. And God grants Hezekiah another 15 years of life and rule. He says to him, at the end of this, things are going to be real tough for Jerusalem. But Hezekiah is pretty comfortable with the fact that during his 15 years, everything's going to be fine. And in Isaiah 39, we have an incident that has a profound impact on Judea. There's a small nation, inconsequential nation that sends an envoy of people to visit Hezekiah. And while they're there, Hezekiah takes them and shows them all the riches of the temple. The storerooms, the gold, all the fittings, the carpets. And the temple, if you you remember correctly, the temple was probably somewhere, if we were to build a temple today, it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 million to build the temple. Hezekiah shows these envoys all of this riches, and the envoys happen to be from an inconsequential nation named Babylon, who's about to rise up, okay? Now, a prophet goes to Hezekiah and says, you're not going to like this. Yeah, you shouldn't have done that. And he has this this prophecy over Hezekiah and the temple, and it's a prophecy for the destruction and the exile of Jerusalem. And he tells them the Babylonians are going to come and take you away and raise the city. It's a prophecy of judgment. And that's exactly what happened. Jerusalem was sacked. And people were carried away to Babylon. And in Isaiah 40, the the passage that that is about to be quoted in Luke, Isaiah 40 speaks of the aftermath of that judgment. And it starts out with verses 1 through 4. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This is pretty good. But remember, it happens after the sacking of Jerusalem and the slaughter of of probably somewhere around 100,000 people and being carried away into exile. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. And then we go into our passage that John the Baptist is quoting. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make its path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now the salvation word here is out of the Septuagint. It's the Greek word for salvation. But if you were to read this passage in Hebrew, it would say you would see the glory of God. The glory of God. So John uses this passage in Isaiah to proclaim 
that salvation is coming. This is the salvation that was promised all the way back in Isaiah 40. But we need to understand that that salvation doesn't come as a reward to the people for doing a good job. They haven't done a good job. Isaiah fell to the, the sin of pride. And because of his pride, Jerusalem falls. The temple falls. Everything falls apart. And as a matter of fact, if you were to look at the history of the Hebrew people for 2,000 years, they have proved over and over again that they are totally incapable of obeying the word of God. They're totally unable to save themselves. They can't obey the law. They can't save themselves yet. Yet God says that they will see his glory. That they will see his salvation. And this proclamation that that John the Baptist is making in Luke chapter 3 is not a proclamation of, of reward. It's a proclamation of grace. It's an example of God's inimitable grace. Even though they've dropped the ball time after time after time, God is sending salvation to them. This reveals to us something about the character and nature of God that we need to know. God saves us not because of what we've done, not because of what we're going to do, not because of any capability that we have, but because he's God. Because he's God. Grace is not grace if we think we've got to do something to earn it. And God shows us that in the history of the Hebrew people. I've said it time and again. If you don't see yourself in the Hebrews in the Old Testament, you're never going to understand the Old Testament. God shows them time after time that even though they are incapable of doing what he tells them to do, that he will send salvation to them. It's the same message to us. It's a message of grace. It's a proclamation of grace. And apparently, apparently they need grace because we see that in the accusation that follows in verse 7 through 9. Listen to this. He said, therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, yet they're, they're going out to, to see what the man of God has to say. They're going out to receive their blessing. They're thinking, maybe this is it. Maybe this is what we've been waiting for. And here's what he says when they get there. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, now the image that we have here is when uh, every now and then one of the fields would start burning. There'd be a lightning strike or somebody would start a fire or something like that. And the Jews knew to stay away from the burning fields because the first thing that came out of the burning fields were the snakes. They would run from the fire. And so it was dangerous to be near a burning field. So he said, who's warned you to, to flee from the wrath to come? And then he says in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He said, look like you have repented. Make sure that your life is producing the evidence of repentance. If you have repented from your sins, there should be a change in your life. He said, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. And, and there's another image that we need to see in our minds here, because he's not saying that the root is being chopped off. He's saying the axe is laying next to the root. And God's about to pick up that axe. He has not taken it to the root yet. You have an opportunity to repent. Uh, repent 
before God picks up the axe and cuts the root off. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, they were relying on being God's chosen people. They were relying on being his family. And John says, if, if, if they are repentant for their sins, if they're truly contrite before God, that they, their repentance will show in a transformed manner of living. They're supposed to be different. They're supposed to be set apart. And this accusation says that they're not. They're, they're not acting any differently than everybody else. And that judgment is coming. Now watch this. We all know that we're supposed to repent. We all know that we're supposed to be contrite before our Father. We all know that we're supposed to humble ourselves before Him. But what does that look like? What does that transformed life look like? And we see that in the revelation that occurs in verses 10 through 14. So it says in verse 10, and the crowds, this would not include the Jewish leaders who rejected him at every step. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? There's the question. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Now, they lived in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was all about acquisition. They were trying to be good people. They were trying to be godly people. But they were immersed in an environment in a culture that said it's all about you. Don't let anybody take your stuff. You've earned this stuff. You have the right to this stuff. There are people out there that will, will connive you and try to take these things from you. So they live in that atmosphere, and John says, if you are truly repentant, if you're truly walking with God, then share your stuff. Share it liberally. Whoever has clothing, whoever has food, share it. And, and the tax collectors, verse 12, also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Now, the way you became a tax collector in the Roman Empire was you went and you bought an area. You paid the officials and they gave you a certain area and you were authorized to collect the taxes in that area. And you had the authority to collect the taxes, whatever taxes that the Roman Empire imposed upon the people, but you could also collect some more. And that's how you were supposed to make money. You could collect as much as you could get from people. And the problem was, by the time we got to the first century, the Roman Empire was so busy expanding, so busy trying to maintain peace within the empire, that the taxes kept on getting higher and higher and higher. So the tax collectors were getting more and more taxes for the Roman Empire and taking more and more for themselves. So the tax collectors say, well, what are we going to do if we're going to show repentance? He said, take the taxes that you're authorized to collect and don't bilk the people. Don't take advantage of them. Verse 14, the soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. Now these would be Jewish soldiers. And their job was to help keep the peace along with the Roman centurions. And the custom had become, again, in first century uh, Jerusalem, in Israel, that the soldiers would exact a fine out of the people they were called to protect. And say, you know what, if you don't pay me some money, I'm going to say you did this. Or if you don't pay me some money, I'm just going to throw you in jail. And so John 
the Baptist is calling these people to live with some integrity. We have these three, what shall we do from the crowd, from the tax collectors, from the soldiers? Notice that John, at no point does, does he call these people to leave their jobs or leave their homes. You are to live in this environment. You are to exist in this environment. You are to be an exemplar of what godly virtue is all about in the place where you have been planted. But he does call them to stand out. He does call them to stand apart. He calls them to go contrary to the culture. The culture would have told them, this is your right, this is your privilege. You've worked hard to get this. You've earned this. Take all you can get. And so that's hard to go against the culture, but he's also calling them to do something even more difficult. He's calling them to go against their nature, a nature of self-preservation, a nature of making sure that you can get everything you got because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, a nature of making yourself more important than the people around you. He's calling them to show godly virtue in everything that they do. So the accusation is that they're living no different than the people around them. There's nothing special about them. They're supposed to be God's people, and they're acting like the world. John reveals that God's people are to live transformed lives. We've all been made new. And it should show in how we relate to the people around us. Well, those people had an expectation. We see that in verses 15 through 17. It says, as the people were in expectation, they were in anticipation, there was electricity going through the crowd. You know, at this particular time, God had been prophetically silent for 400 years. No scripture. There were there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 people wandering around Palestine at this time saying they were the Christ. Nobody had the evidence to back it up. John the Baptist comes. There's prophecies over him. There's miracles happening. He's calling people to repentance, calling them to God. And so the people have this anticipation that God is doing something. And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. Is this the guy? Is this the one that's going to deliver us? Verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John says, not me. There's one coming after me that I am, I am so unworthy of, of serving that I've got to bow down before him. I don't think I'm qualified to tie his shoelaces. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I love this verse because it, it, it has been misinterpreted to great dismay. Because <laughs> people, people will say, I want that fire. I want that Holy Spirit and fire. And I'm going to tell you something. You don't want this fire. You don't want this fire. Because what, what people hear is he'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit and power that you're going to have the, the, these tongues sitting upon you as fire. And, and we know that that's not what he's talking about because of what comes next. It says in verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand. Now, a winnowing fork is a pitchfork. And they would go to the wheat that was standing on a threshing floor and grab this pitchfork and throw it up in the air. 
and the chaff would float away on the air and the wheat would fall down to, to the ground. The chaff, when it began to accumulate, they would burn it because it was worthless. They would burn the chaff. So, John says, the one who's coming is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the people are expecting a deliverer, a vindicator, and they're going to get one, but he's going to come in judgment. He's going to be the tipping point for the eternal existence of every human being that was ever created. Now, we, we heard about this in Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So the fire that we're talking about here is the fire of eternal judgment. There's one who's coming who will either baptize you in the spirit and bless you eternally or will condemn you eternally. This doesn't compute with the Jews. This is why Jesus had such a hard time when he started his teaching. The people expected deliverer, the one comes, but he comes in judgment. And the expectation of the Messiah, that's why they thought John might be the guy, is that he would come in the form of a man, and, and he did, but he did something that they never expected. He also came in the form of God. And the whole world will either live eternally with him or be condemned eternally without him. Well, John doing his job. He's doing it faithfully. He's good at it. Crowds are coming to listen to him. What does he get in return? Incarceration. 18 through 20. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. That Good job, John. Give him a pat on the shoulder. He did it. But with Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all that he locked up John in prison. He put John in prison. Now, Herod had done some pretty unusual stuff. We, we read about it in Matthew 14, verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. He married his brother's wife. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So the people know God's doing something. They're not quite sure what they're doing and really not meeting up to their expectations. But they know that God has sent this man to do something. And Herod is bumping heads with him. He's standing up and saying, Herod, those things are done in darkness. going to be brought to light. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. So Herod puts him in prison. If you follow the rest of the story, we'll have a chance to take a look at it. Herodias' daughter does a dance for Herod in front of a crowd and convinces Herod to give her whatever she asked for, and she asked for John the Baptist's head. So John's reward for doing the good and godly thing is imprisonment and execution. 
There is no gospel that says, come to Jesus and everything's going to be fine. There is no gospel that says, come to Jesus, you'll be rich and wealthy and healthy and all these things. There is a gospel that tells us, come to Jesus, you'll have eternal life. And whatever suffering you go through here on this earth will be worth it because it's going to be glorious on the other end. And we see this in John the Baptist. Well, what now? John the Baptist in trouble, he's in prison, soon to be executed. And we kind of see the passing of, of the torch here, the consecration in verse 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So the one that the Baptist spoke of comes down to be baptized. Well, wait a minute. This is a baptism of repentance. Did he come down to repent of something? I mean, we know Jesus lived a sinless life. He came down to be obedient. Let me give my brother Alan Burnham props here. He came to me in between services. And he said, you know, he was obedient to more than just the, the command to be baptized. He was obedient to the guidelines for entering the priesthood. When Aaron was made a priest, he had to be consecrated. He had to be cleansed. They had to put him through mikvah. I never saw that before. So Jesus is obedient to the command to be baptized and at the same time consecrated in the eyes of the Jewish people to minister in God's name. So the one who's called, the first thing we see about him is he obeys God. Baptized not because he needed to be baptized, but, but to put his obedience on display as an example for us. And in return for that, he's affirmed by the only affirmation he needs. Listen carefully. You know, there, there's this thing. The, the heavens open up. The, there are people standing all over the place. The heavens open up. There's something happening in the skies. We don't know what it is, but it had to be pretty spectacular. And the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus Christ in the form of a dove. And, you know, this is where we get the idea of the dove and the Holy Spirit thing. And then there's this voice. This is my son in whom I am pleased. If we think about the character and nature of God and everything that happened, I mean, Jesus hasn't even ministered yet. The biggest thing we've seen so far is he was at the temple and answering questions intelligently, and everybody was impressed by that. But he's just beginning his ministry, but God is apart from time, amen? God knows everything that Jesus is going to do and how it's going to end up. And so we get our first hint that there's no problem with the cross. It's not an accident that God approves and is pleased of everything that his son will do. God is pleased with the cross. It's part of his plan. And what we need to learn from this, because Jesus got affirmation from nobody. I mean, when he went to the cross, he was alone. Everybody had deserted him. The only affirmation Jesus needed was the affirmation of his Father in heaven. Wow. That'll change your life. 
If you think you're going to get affirmation from the people around you, you're going to end up disappointed. Jesus said, here's where my affirmation comes from. Here's where yours should come from as well. The heavens open up. The Spirit descends. Jesus is consecrated to show that he's the Messiah. So we have these six vignettes, six scenarios. We have this proclamation. It's a proclamation of God's grace, not God's reward. Grace is unearned. We're unworthy of it, undeserved. It's given freely. And, and the people there receive this accusation that they are not living transformed lives. It's not evident in and through them that there's something different about them. They weren't walking in their repentance. And just so that there was no doubt about what was expected of them, we have this revelation of what the transformed life looks like, going contrary to the culture, contrary to our own desires, contrary to our nature, portraying Christ in everything we do. And that's important because there is an expectation, and the expectation is that salvation has come, that the destiny of the whole world hinges around this one person, Jesus Christ, how they receive him. Everyone will either live with him eternally or be condemned eternally away from him. See, the expectation we have is that that will happen to everybody that we know. It will occur to everybody that we meet. They will either live with him eternally or be condemned away from him for eternity. It should build in us an anticipation for the gospel. We see that the reward could be incarceration. It could be trial. It could be trouble. Our lives may be filled with trials. It may include suffering. But all of that is temporary compared to the glory that awaits us in heaven for all eternity. And then we've seen the consecration of the Messiah. Jesus set apart and affirmed by the Father. And we're one with him. It means that we're set apart and we're affirmed by the Father. So there could be a no more clear gospel presentation than what John just did there by the riverside. And still we struggle with, what shall I do? And we do. I, I, you know, we're, this is a great congregation. And, and I know that as, as a group, we, we sweat the details. What would God have me do? And I love that. I love that about the folks that we get to worship with. But I want you to think about this. Because we, we struggle with things like, does God want me to buy the red car or the blue car? God want me to buy this house or that house? Live here or live here? You know, uh, now this is going to surprise some of you coming from me, but God has given us free will. Nobody's smiling. <laughs> he has. He's given us latitude on these things. And I'll tell you something. I, I think God will allow you to make the decision whether or not you want a red car or a blue car and bless you in it as long as God is involved in the process. The important thing is whether or not we are walking in repentance, whether or not we are living a lifestyle that shows that we're something different than the rest of the world. And I think if we're that, if we're pursuing God, if he's our highest goal, if he's our heart's fondest desire, then God will let you buy whatever color car you want. 
He'll let you live in whatever city you want, as long as you're living there for his glory. As long as you're living there in a manner that is worthy of your calling. We have latitude in these things. And all the things that we're talking about here are secondary. They're secondary to whether or not we are being the witness and the testimony of God's grace and mercy that we're called to be. It is our primary calling. If we're doing that, then everything else falls into place. God will bless us. 42 years ago, I didn't know that. I'm not sure I know it now. I have a tendency to sweat the details myself. But I want to fall back on the affirmation of the Father who if I'm doing what I'm called to do, when I lay my head down for the last time, will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. May you have that same blessing. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks, Father, that you've given us your spirit to help us walk these things out. We give you thanks, Father, for the ministry of John the Baptist, Lord, that shows us that uh, we should be careful not to be disappointed in anything that might happen, Lord, uh, because we have the guarantee of a home with you in the end. Father, may that message flow from us that we will live eternally with Christ or be condemned eternally without him. May it be on our lips and in our heart. May it be reflected in the way we live. We pray this in Jesus' name.